Hello, and welcome to the WinPower podcast with me, Claire Warren, editor of WinPower Monthly. And me, Ian Griggs, deputy editor of WinPower Monthly. Last month, we published the winners of WinPower Monthly's coveted Turbines of the Year awards. The categories included onshore and offshore wind turbines, blades, drivetrains, and innovations. But what do the winning entries in each category tell us about the wider trends influencing the fast-paced world of wind power technology? Here to help us throw light on these matters, our guest is Wind Power Monthly Technology and Market Trends Correspondent and Turbines of the Year Judge, Isa DeVries. Welcome to the Wind Power Podcast, Isa. Hi. Hi, Isa. Let me kick off with the the first question. In both the 5.6 megawatt plus onshore category and the offshore category, Chinese turbines did particularly well. I'm wondering what you think that says about the market. I've certainly noticed that over the course of 2023, Western turbine manufacturers seem to have a lot less product announcements than they had done in previous years. Is that something that you agree with? Yes, certainly. After the end of the subsidies uh, for onshore and uh, and offshore, the Chinese had to adapt very quickly to lower capex levels, and they did it by very dynamic approach with sometimes unusual solutions. And so we have seen in the past year, especially a continuous stream of new products released for onshore and offshore wind. About the Western suppliers, it is also true that were very few new product introductions, both for onshore and offshore. But uh, this year, it will be different because there will be several new prototypes like from uh, from Enercon, Nordex, uh, Festas. We have also seen an announcement with the GE turbine, the 3.654. We can also expect a prototype from WEC from Brazil. And there could be a couple more we may not have seen. And for offshore, there has, of course, been the rumored new GE turbine, uh, 18 megawatts, and also an announcement about uh, Siemens Gamesa having received uh, 30 million subsidy from the European Union. And we are all very anxious to see what will finally happen. That's a very positive start to our podcast, Isa. Thank you for that. I'm certainly looking forward to the judging of this year's turbines of the year. If I could go back to those Chinese manufacturers, they were particularly notable for the size. So both in the 5.6 megawatt plus onshore category and the offshore category, we saw very large turbines from Chinese manufacturers. For instance, gold in the offshore category went to an 18 megawatt turbine from Minyang with a record 292 meter rotor. What is it, in your opinion, about such large turbines that make them stand out in their category? What really amazed me is the scale and the pace of scaling we have seen in this past year and also it surprised me how quickly they were capable to adapt to new drivetrain solutions. They have uh, been able to quickly adapt to new semi-integrated drivetrain solutions for up to 15, 16 megawatt and then move to also fully integrated systems. And that is now also included in several Chinese turbines. They have also been able to revitalize the high-speed concept, like non-integrated solutions previously thought. uh, Maybe if they were 8 megawatt and 200 meters, that would be the end. But some Chinese manufacturers have gone to 216, and we don't know if that is the end. And also other really surprising solutions where they had semi-integrated drivetrains and uh, one uh, Chinese 
supplier Winday has now 15 to 16 megawatt and uh, also even bigger than 260 meters. So it is really an amazing development. It certainly seems that every year the megawatts that we talk about in terms of the size of turbines just gets bigger and bigger, certainly from the Chinese. The silver and the bronze winner in the offshore category, both Dongfang turbines, both 18 megawatts, different drivetrains. Would you mind explaining a little bit more about that? Dongfang introduced a few years ago the 10 megawatt machine with with 185 meter rotor and a direct drive. And based on that concept, they introduced a 16 megawatt, what they then said would then be in two steps be scaled up to 17 and then to 18. And the 18 megawatt direct drive is currently the biggest direct drive turbine. And in parallel, they developed a medium speed concept with a fully integrated drivetrain. Perhaps not surprising, that will be also the blueprint for a bigger turbine, perhaps up to 25 megawatt. I also like to note that it is not only the megawatts, because the megawatt is a nameplate capacity, and we always have to view it in relation to the rotor size. While in China, you have a 9 megawatt turbine with 240 meter rotor, while when GE introduced the 12 megawatt, it had 220. And GE has now upgraded it to 14.7 and still 220 meters. So you have to look at the wind climate as well. The wind climate is very important. Like Ming Yang's turbine with 292 meters, it is an 18 to 22 megawatt platform. So that means they could, with flexible ratings, they could serve several markets, like they could serve with, in a 20 megawatt version with the same rotor, like the northern Scotland, where you could have a 12 meters per second mean wind speeds, while in other areas like the Mediterranean, where you have maybe 8.5, they could serve it with the 18 megawatt version, so that you could serve you know, many different markets with one concept. So it's always important to look at the two in parallel. There's a big debate in the wind industry around size, Having recently interviewed TU Delft Professor Carlos Ferreira, who argues that optimizing wind power will increasingly be about the efficient use of available wind resources with a number of good wind locations, the greatest single limiting factor. And also with your understanding of the business needs of you know, Western turbine firms, do you have a view on whether bigger is better or whether optimizing existing platforms is the way forward? I think they are closely interlinked. The Western suppliers, they have already started producing their 14 and 15 megawatt turbines, so Festas and Seamus Gamesa. Both of them have the same rotor size, 236 meters. So that means if we take 25 meter clearance, then it would be 236 plus 25. Then what the maximum tip height is for these rotors. So that means they can use the wind resource and sweep in fresh wind from that wind resource, from that specific height. So that is in 261 meters. If you had a turbine like the one Ming Yang has now introduced with 153 meter rotor, then that could go to nearly 340. So that means you have a lot of extra height in, in the upper layers of the atmosphere where that is, is energy rich wind. Carlos Ferreira warns for wind exhaustion. And based on his research, he has found that in many wind farms, the, the capacity factor compared to a single turbine already 30% less. And if that goes on, then it is just an, like a forest with a lot of trees all at the same height and they catch each other's wind. And at the end, 
each of them will produce hardly anything. And that is then a waste of critical resources like copper and steel. But it also means that we cannot meet Europe's targets. Professor Ferreira said at the moment, we have only met the 3% of the goal for 2050. And I can only fully agree with him with that if the North Sea and, and other seas would be filled all with turbines of the same size, then we will not be able to use the better wind resources. And it is like an army running out of fuel. If the supply line is not properly in place, then it all falls still. No, the tanks cannot move when they have no fuel. So we can draw the parallel with wind. If you run out of wind resource, then you can still have a theoretical debate on whether or not you should limit the tip height And basically, I think it is only a secondary issue because the the main issue is the wind resource. It's a really strong argument for why bigger is better. But do you have a view on the counter argument that some among the Western OEMs make, which is that you know they need to optimize the existing platforms that they have in order to roll out faster and further. They're making a business case for why actually you need to slow down this arms race. Yeah, certainly. And you also had here the nail on the, uh, right on the head, because if any supplier would move very quickly, let's say from 15 megawatt, and they say, let us move on to 30 megawatt immediately and, and introduce those turbines next year, but that would become a disaster. Because everybody knows that if you have developed something, you first have to mature it, produce large volumes. Also, um, what has proven successful is not to, to move quickly, all the time from one concept to another. But if you can stick to one concept and try to mature that, then you can also move faster on the learning curve. So you don't have to start all the time, again, in a high-risk, high-cost area, but you could move on. This is what Siemens Gamesa, for instance, did with, you know, starting with 6 megawatt, 7 megawatt, 8 megawatt, 11, 14. It is all based on the same concept. In Germany, they can still, in the same factory, move the same product and the time to market is relatively short because you have the same concept so you can also say that is a very valid point but at the same time they should keep in the back of their mind what professor ferreira said except that you cannot do it overnight at the same time when turbines are now built for 35 years if you install something what is relatively small and stays for 35 years, that means in all those 35 years, you cannot install a bigger one what could make better use of the wind resource at upper layers of the atmosphere. That's something that really needs serious consideration, in my view. Let's talk about a specific application of one of those huge rotors. Coming back to the sort of turbines of the year, in the 5.61 megawatt plus onshore turbine category. Sani's winning model is 10 megawatts and has a 230 meter rotor. Do you think, Isa, that large onshore turbines could ever be appropriate for the European market, given the tip height restrictions found in various locations and the difficulties of transporting something of this size? So Sani had this uh, 10 megawatt turbine with 230 meter rotor, what was then the winner in this uh, second onshore category. But they also announced a 15 megawatt turbine with undisclosed rotor diameter. And recently they said it would be 131 meter blades. uh, That is uh, so far as I know the longest for onshore. And that adds up to about uh, 270 meters diameter, 268, 270. You could install in remote places like the Gobi Desert if you have the factory 
also very close to it uh, for the blades and the nacelles and also the transportation is easy. But in Europe, it will be a bigger challenge. In Europe, they now have uh, several prototypes, you know, 175 meters, Anacon and Nordex, Vestals 172. That is already a challenge to move those blades over the, the roads, move them underneath uh, railway crossings, the installation cranes to install them next to the turbine. Not long ago, the maximum tip height for onshore turbines was a kind of strange maximum of 200 meters. But there will be all sorts of restrictions. So I don't think that such big turbines like the 15 megawatt Sani will find it very easy to enter European markets. At the same time, we have seen that there is a great progress made also with the transportation equipment. A Dutch pioneer said that when we made a 12-meter blade, we increased it by one meter, we have to segment it. And now we see the 86-meter blade in Europe and much longer blades in China. So we should perhaps see them also in the perspective of specific market demands and specific market challenges. But uh, it is also true, let's wait and see, because we never, so far we have seen that any prediction on size has proven wrong. Sounds about right. A word from one of our sister titles. Did you know that one in six species in Great Britain are at risk of extinction? My name is James Ajapong Parsons, and I'm the producer of The Eco Chamber, a weekly podcast that investigates the deep-rooted issues facing our country's natural environment and the policy that underpins them. We give you the facts, insights, and exclusives that no other podcast can. The Eco Chamber, digging deep into stories that matter. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. If we move on to the drivetrain category, Enicon's winning entry was a segmented 10-metre dish-shaped PMG that uses half the quantity of magnets compared with the current 6-metre EP5 generator. Do you think this is about cost or do you think the company has an eye on the scarcity of raw materials for magnets? And is this something we'll see more of in future years, is trying to reduce the quantity of rare earths that are used in the manufacture of turbines? It's a very good question, Claire, and it has several different aspects, as Anacom explained. First, moving a six-megawatt generator in one piece is already a challenge. And also, the volume of the generator of Anacom's current generator, the six-megawatt, has a certain volume. And if you try to, to take more power or a higher capacity from the same volume, then increasingly it is faced with uh, thermal, electrical and mechanical challenges. So, And one of them could become critical. Thermal capacity is certainly always an important point with any generator development and direct drive. Then they move to 10 meters. And with a bigger generator, automatically you need less active material, the magnets, the, the copper and the magnetic steel. The bigger you get, the more efficient it becomes in the use of critical materials. And by splitting it, they have now two halves of five meters each. So each half is is, is less than the six meters of the previous generator. So it's much easier now to move the half parts of the generator to a site. And also the weight of the generator is about the same. So the weight of each half is only 50%. And that also helps to install them on the turbine, because if you have to lift only half of the mass, it is it is easier and cheaper. So they can go to higher towers, they can save on, on the crane, so uh, they can save on the transport. 
they save on their rock materials. It is like uh, many benefits combined in one. And I found it amazing how they succeeded in manufacturing this generator in two pieces because you know, the magnets always try to pull to the stationary part. So it is really, it is very tricky to manufacture something in, in, in two pieces, what they did. So I find it an engineering marvel. Staying with the innovation categories in turbines of the year, the innovation category is shared uh, this year by two very different winners. We've got ThyssenKrupp Rutter Erder's pitch bearing unit and the Vestas cable stayed rotor demonstrator. Why two such different concepts, albeit ones that may both help the industry to move forward? Both of them are really out of the box solutions uh, to start with the pitch bearing unit. When you have an, a conventional hub, it has a lot of challenges because the hub is getting very big nowadays, uh, four meters or even bigger. It is very heavy, so it is very costly. Uh, they also need stiffening and strengthening of these hubs because uh, sometimes they deform by their own mass and they only become strong enough and they add on all the plates and all, all the equipment inside. What I found very clever with the rotor the solution is they have now a standardized smaller hub you know, what's easier to transport and what does hardly contain anything except some straight flanges where you bolt something on. And these are extender bearing units where they have the, the, the pitch bearing units incorporated in three separate castings. And these units also contain the pitch mechanisms, either hydraulic or electrical, and they can move them into four different parts to a construction site and put them together. And it also allows uh, putting on different sizes bearings uh, onto a same hub. And even several suppliers could, you know, without giving away a lot of IP, could order the same hubs. Something else uh, Rotair is now working on is splitting that even smaller hub now into two or three pieces. And because that is now enabled by the fact that these extender parts were containing the bearings, they are so strong that they could, if they are bolted together with the segments, they can still make a very strong and viable unit. It is a useful candidate for the products of the year. Then moving to the cable state uh, rotor, that's also very clever. But this one combines the supported rotor with a segmentation of the blade. And because it has to rotate, it has to be a pitchable blade. It needs a kind of bearing solution for enabling the rotation of the blade. So an, an integrated solution is always more efficient than a non-integrated solution because you combine several functions in one component. And now what Vestas, they have now to prove that it works and to get it also green light from the, the higher management to take it in production. But then it opens really the road for uh, longer blades because if you have a clever cost-effective solution in making a blade in segments, then it could also allow densely populated areas to have turbines with bigger rotors you know, without running into all sorts of logistic challenges. It's fascinating that so much of the innovation in this technology includes the logistics of actually getting it to the place concerned as a component of that innovation. Obviously, one of the pros of segmented blades is the transportation issues, particularly in densely populated areas. What would be the, the perhaps the negatives of a, a segmented blade? One of the challenges with segmented blades is that they are heavier and they are more costly because you have to make the joint. And the joint is time-consuming. It adds more materials and it also gives a disruption 
in the power flow into the blade because it, it is a more stiffer part of the structure and it has to last 25 years. So if you have a bolted construction, then you have to certify it for 35 years where it is pulled and pushed all the time by the wind. So far, it seems that the industry prefers to make the blades in one piece as long as they can. If you had to predict the sort of innovations in wind technology that we're likely to see emerge this year, what are they likely to center on? Blades, drivetrains, nacelles? One could think after so many innovations in a short period, is it likely to dry up? But at the same time, we have seen that there's always something new to be developed. It can be in towers, it can be in floaters, it can be in turbines, it can be in blades, drivetrains, because a lot of the ideas introduced last year, they still have to be materialized, like Ming Yang's solution with two defects, what was an, quite an innovative idea. They say they will build it, and it is not certain if we will soon see it in the turbine. If such a system works, it opens a lot of perspective for the scaling. The system with the two generators, you could also alternatively fit four or three or five Professor Georg Jacobs of the Technical University in Aachen, he sees a future in ultra-high-speed drivetrains, also with many generators. And that's a vision. And sometimes a vision takes time to become reality. But now what Young is now doing, it certainly moves a little bit into the direction what Professor Jacobs predicted. Let's wait and see if also those ideas are getting picked up. The one constant in wind power technology is the pace of change, I think. Are you uh, disappointed or even surprised that floating wind technology hasn't made it as a category in its own right yet in turbines of the year? I think I perhaps expected that this year it would be a category, but we're just not seeing the kind of development that moves it towards the commercialisation stage. If we would have to judge on the number of projects announced and the ambitions revealed, then one would indeed expect that each year would very quickly qualify for a separate category. But the reality is different. In reality, we see more than 100 concepts, and not one that has made it into a serious volume product. But it is not disappointing, but it is perhaps the normal course of events, how it should take, because there are so many challenges with floating. One is that everything moves. If it moves, everything is difficult. You know, if you could imagine fitting a service crane on one of the legs, that is not easy. It's not easy because the rotor likes to stay in the same position and the floater moves. Then you can do two things. You can make the floater bigger and more stable, but then it's more expensive. You could alternatively make a smaller floater that moves a lot, but then you may run into some problems with the turbine because the rotor tries to stay in place and the floater tries to move it out of its plane of rotation. Those are, I wouldn't say engineering nightmares, but it is certainly something that is a challenge to solve it. And then there is also the mooring. So attaching the cable to a platform, if you clamp them in, then it may break at the clamp. If you put the movable pins, then the pins will wear out. So you have to continuously search for solutions. The pace is out of necessity slower than some would like to see. Well, we certainly don't want to see floaters floating off to sea because the, the moorings have come loose. You mentioned that there are a hundred different technology solutions at the moment for floating. Obviously, those 100 aren't going to make it to market. Do you have an idea of how much of a contraction we might see in that over time? 
Well, you could perhaps draw a parallel with the automotive industry when it started. Uh, there were over 1,000 manufacturers making cars that reduced quite a bit. With floating, we now see it is normally when a new development starts, there's like a funnel. In the top of the funnel, a lot of new ideas come in and then they funnel down. And at the end, a couple of solutions will prove themselves not to be viable and to be the better solutions. So the bigger budgets will also play a key role. So I'm, I'm not optimistic that automatically the best product will prove itself because history shows that that is often not the case. I wonder what will end up being the Model T Ford of the uh, of the floating wind world. Let's talk about the turbines of the year process. Can you take our audience through how you go about judging these awards from reviewing the submissions of relevant technology in a timely manner through to deciding on winners in each category? One essential part of the process is that any potential suppliers should be willing to share information. Some believe that without sharing information, you could get a gold medal, but that is not a very realistic viewpoint. On the other hand, he shares a lot of information that automatically does not give them a gold medal either. But if proper information is supplied, I normally look at the what is the entry, what is the product, what is the product by itself, but also how does it compare to the competition. If it is in a kind of incremental development of a certain product, then it's very important what is the other intake? How does the market react to it? For instance, if a new product introduced and immediately they got orders for 2,000 turbines, then, you know, then that is a sign that the product has been well received, that there is also market confidence in product. But then we get into more innovative ideas. Then I look in uh, how does the innovation uh, stand out compared to others? So what could be the value of the information for advancing wind power? With innovations, some really stand out, while there are also others really remarkable innovations. You know, we cannot have five innovations in one category, so then we have to rank them. Even if they are incomparable in nature, they can be comparable in what they show on on the level of innovation and clever thinking. Their significance to the wind industry. Blades is a typical category where size matters. If a company is able to make a very long blade with a favorable mass characteristic, then I try to get the specifications on what they have done. So it requires not only the design of the blade, but also the whole process control is also extremely important. With the drivetrains, for instance, I, I looked at the what is the innovative value? Uh, how new is it? And how, how daring were they in, in stick out the neck in doing something different? And if they have done something different, is it relevant? Because you can also develop something that was really unusual, but what will never have any chance to succeed. So then it is for me the difficult task to try to find out, would it be also a realistic innovation? Because if you have something, let's say you have a very clever mechanism in the blade and you're not able to reach it, especially offshore, then it becomes a nightmare because then it cannot be maintained. And if it happens in the middle of the windy season, it may have to stop the turbines sometimes for months. Some of the statistics is also market insight, technology insight, gut feeling. So it is always a combination of many different factors. 
I hope that the readers appreciate that it is all done with the best possible insight in what is offered by different suppliers, but always depends on judgment. Really interesting to get that insight, and it sounds to me like it's an incredibly rigorous process. Isa, can you tell us a little bit about your thinking in judging the first category, which is onshore turbines up to 5.6 megawatts? This is a very relevant one because this Festos 163 4.5 megawatt was specifically developed for the American market. This product is in the latest extension of an extremely successful 4 megawatt platform. They have developed many different variants. This variant can be installed with basically the same technologies. The blades can be transported on the same trains, on the same trucks. The installation procedures are the same. Uh, the nacelle has all the time kept the same dimensions, You know, even though the turbine has evolved quite a bit in, in the past 14 years. To me, also amazing how they have been able to, uh, to squeeze in more and more into the same box and make it a more potent and competitive product. The customer interest was also translates in uh, around uh, five gigawatts on others, uh, not long after it was installed. So it means that the market really likes it. It is not really, an, one can say, a, t- a true technology innovation. It's more an incremental product innovation, but one with a huge impact and uh, also, again, successful. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Isa, for talking us through Turbines of the Year. It was really valuable insight. Thank you very much. It was my great pleasure. Thank you. Yes, thanks, Isa. Good to talk to you. You've been listening to the Wind Power Podcast with Claire Warren and Ian Griggs. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and do feel free to leave us a review. For more news, comment and analysis on the wind industry, visit windpowermonthly.com dot com.